Amen. Why don't we pray together one more time as we begin? Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you so much for your grace today. We thank you for the special grace of knowing the life of the resurrection, the principle of that life that is operative in every genuine born-again believer in this church. We thank you that you have united us together with him so that we could walk in newness of life. And part of that walk, Lord, is that we would continually and habitually contemplate the glory of our Savior. And we pray, God, that you would show us that glory now as we think about this passage. Lord, we pray that you would give us a glimpse of his glory. Help us to see, Lord, his person and his work, especially as it relates to the fact that we have come, Lord, to a great reality known as Zion and how He, Jesus, the mediator, reigns supreme there. We thank You and bless You. We ask Your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the final grouping, if you would, of the what I've called the blessings of the new covenant, the unspeakable privileges, the blessings of the new covenant as we finally come to the last contrast here as we go from the type to the antitype and what it teaches us. The ultimate lesson here is eschatological, of course, because it ties together all of redemptive history and the progression of God's revelation as it reaches its climax in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's really what we have set in front of us here. We're going to focus today on verse 24 Let me read it for us again. It says that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of the blood better than the blood of Abel. We've looked at how Zion and really what we can just simply call heaven, that what is represented there is not only the gathering of heaven and also the righteous character, the righteous nature of heaven. But lastly here, we're looking, because we're looking at the mediator of a new covenant, what we can call the covenant bond of heaven. So um, the gathering of heaven, the righteousness of heaven, and now the covenant bond of heaven. I suppose I just want to reiterate, what is the thrust behind everything going on, not only in the book of Hebrews, brothers and sisters, But in God's redemptive activity through Jesus Christ, what is God doing? What's the purpose of it all? And I introduced a sentence to you that I want to reiterate today uh, as we looked a couple weeks ago. But what God is doing here in bringing about a new covenant is that He is inaugurating, He is beginning, in other words, a reality. And that is, and this reality is this. That God desires a holy people in a holy realm, Zion. In the context of a holy covenant bond of communion through Jesus Christ. It's a way that you can summarize the whole Bible. Now, in order to see this covenant bond of heaven, I want to turn to a different passage. And that is Revelation chapter 21. The reason I take you there is not only because of its... Obviously, it's eschatological significance, the fact that it's in the eschaton. 
But because this passage interacts with and it touches and it intersects with several uh, covenants and with several covenantal concepts, let's just read that together. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. We've gone to this passage several times. Listen to what it says. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now, one of the reasons why I think it's important for us to call this the covenant bond of heaven is because the concept of covenant really sort of undergirds the entire not only redemptive process, but the whole revelation of God is covenantally executed and conceived. It really is. I mean, look at, um, if you just look at this passage, all of the covenantal overtones that are going on here. Well, first, the language of a new heavens and a new earth. This is uh, the revelator, John, really seeing the fulfillment uh, through, alluding through uh, Isaiah, really Isaiah 65 and other places, the, the consummation of the new covenant. He makes reference to the new Jerusalem, which of course, the new Jerusalem is really the epicenter. It is Zion, which is in the Old Testament synonymous with Jerusalem, but ultimately is a prophetic symbol. The new Jerusalem is the kingdom of God. It is the epicenter of God's kingdom, which was where God or which where where God's king David was promised to have a perpetual descendant on the throne in the covenant of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 13 and then of course Psalm 89 which is just a an exposition of the Davidic covenant that over overlaps what God did through his son in the covenant of redemption. It makes a reference to God's tabernacle which of course was erected and was constituted at the giving of the law and through the Exodus as Moses is given the law and given instructions on building that tabernacle so that this picture of the eschaton points us back to the Mosaic covenant and the fulfillment of all of that typology, all that symbolism, uh, the, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, uh, the, the, the types and shadows that are there. It's all fulfilled right here as it's consummated. He also makes reference to the Abrahamic covenant by dwelling with his people and indeed God taking a people for himself. As it says there, they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. That's what was promised in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 17 and in many other places like uh, Jeremiah chapter 24 and ultimately realized in the new covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31 We could even say that this text reminds us in the end that God will remove the curse of the Adamic covenant, the covenant of works which was broken, and there will be no longer any death. And as a matter of fact, Revelation tells us there will be no more curse 
Because Jesus, having crushed the head of the serpent, has removed the curse once and for all. Of course, this is only possible because God fulfilled His covenant promise. And that promise is seen there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God makes a promise to redeem a new humanity through Jesus Christ. What happened to the first humanity? Well, they followed the serpent. And by following the serpent, they fell. And because they fell, that first humanity was cursed. That first humanity was lost in that sense. So that humanity needed to be redeemed. And it was going to be redeemed not as man worked for redemption. Not as man earned forgiveness and earned salvation. No, no, no. That was a gracious promise because it said that God was going to do this freely by His grace. And eventually, as we understand it, that seed being Christ, all those who trust in Him would come to see that redemption. Do you understand now why I say that what this is giving us here is the covenant bond of heaven. Because, brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian today, not only are you in covenant bond presently with God through Jesus Christ, but when you get to heaven, what it will be, it will be a, a, a consummation of that covenant. Or we will dwell with Him forever, forever. Now, as we think about this covenant bond even further, I want to point out several things, just the features of this verse here in uh, uh, Hebrews. Uh, I want to talk about Jesus, His work as the mediator. I want to talk about how that was accomplished through the sprinkling of His blood and how that was ultimately declaring the supremacy of Jesus' mercy and grace. So first... The fact that He is our mediator. There's one thing that Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus' new covenant work as a mediator is absolutely necessary. Um, we have to have a mediator. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, there is one mediator between God and man. You see that? That you and I need mediation. So what is Hebrews telling us at a very basic level, at an evangelical level, what Hebrews is telling us is that we need someone to work between God and us. And without someone being our mediator, being our go-between, we are absolutely cut off from God. We've no access. We've no life with God. No communion with God. No friendship with God. And therefore, we are desperately in need of Jesus' mediatorial work. Now, were there other mediators in the past? Yes, of course. The high priest functioned as a mediator who went between God and man. Moses was a mediator between God and man. But all of those mediators were insufficient to bring about final closure, to bring about final communion with God. Look with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, just to emphasize, is that this is part of Jesus' mediator ministry. And he did what Moses could not do. And it says, therefore, in Hebrews 3, 1, that, holy brethren, we're partakers of a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also in all his house. 
His house is that those people that Moses represented that were under his mediatorial service. And it says here, for he has been counted more worthy or worthy of more glory than Moses by just as much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. In other words, Moses himself is part of the house. See that? For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, as a mediator even, for a testimony to those things which were to be spoken of later. See that there? Moses' entire purpose as a mediator was typological and prophetic in nature that would speak of things that were to take place and be revealed later. But Christ, don't you love that word? But Christ, but Him, but Christ was faithful as a son over His house, whose house we are. See, He represents us as our mediator if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Not only do we see the necessity of the mediator, we also see the superior nature of his work as both our mediator and representative in the new covenant, but also because Jesus, being a prophet, being a priest, being a king, also intercedes for us so that his work as a mediator goes on and on and on. Hebrews 7, verse 25. You know this verse. Therefore, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. That was the function of a high priest. The high priest was to go in and to mediate before the people, to offer up prayers and supplications on behalf of the covenant people. And if he did not stand there as an earthly representative of the economy of heaven... In other words, how it works, that God needs a mediator, then the people would have no connection to God. Thankfully, what is heaven? Let me back up. Heaven is Christ by His intercessory work keeping us in the presence of God. That means that He has to be what He is here For all eternity, should Jesus ever stop in heaven, in eternity, in the eons into the future, should He ever stop being our intercessor, we would be immediately kicked out of heaven. But He lives forever to be our intercessor. He forever intercedes. He forever stands there as our mediator. It's beautiful. Jesus as our mediator is also completely and totally all-sufficient. The work that He did, He did it perfectly. He brings us to God. He stands between a holy God and a sinful people. He is able to, by one sacrifice, He is able to bring that perfection that the old economy could not bring. Uh, Look at chapter 10 of Hebrews. Turn there. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. The contrast could not be any clearer in terms of previous mediators, previous priests, previous prophets, and what have you, and the mediatorial work of Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 11. 
Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Notice the, notice the emphasis on repetition. It has to happen daily. In other words, the old mediators, they had to go in all the time. They could never stop working. Daily. Time after time. Same sacrifices. And, and when he says same sacrifices, what he's saying is that qualitatively the work, although it was repetitive, it never changed. It never got better. It never enhanced. There was never going to be a better sacrifice brought by the high priest. It would always be the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And what does it say? Another but statement. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. Oh boy, every one of you should be able to just stand at this point and just preach the rest of this sermon for me. It's so simple, right? He sat down. His work was finished. And what now? What is he doing in his heavenly session? Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Sets us apart. Sanctifies us. Brings us to a state of ceremonial and spiritual perfection. Internal perfection. Where we stand righteous in the sight of God. The mediatorial role of Jesus reminds us That our covenant bond is based on a perfect life that he lived. A perfect service that he rendered. Perfect death. Perfect resurrection. And perfect intercession. The covenant bond of heaven is sealed in the blood and in the prayer of our great high priest. He's the glue that holds it all together. As our mediator, Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant with the people of God. Even as God has forged a covenant bond with His Son, the Son of God forges a covenant bond with us through His blood. Matter of fact, in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, there Jesus tells His disciples, even as the Father has granted me a kingdom so too I grant you a kingdom. The interesting thing about that passage is that the word grant is the word diatithemi. It's kind of in the same word group as diatheke, which is covenantal terms. So some interpret this to say what Jesus was saying is that he has covenanted a kingdom to his people, even as the Father covenanted a kingdom to him. We, we are covenant people. You don't have to be an infant Baptist to be a covenant person, by the way. But we are covenant people. That's what we are. What about the concept of the covenant quickly? It says that Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant. Isn't that interesting? Now, what's interesting about this reference to a new covenant It's a little bit different than what has been mentioned before. So, for example, if you go back to chapter 8, where it says that he would make a new covenant, right? That he was going to effect a new covenant. Chapter 8, verse 8, I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
you go back to chapter 12, when he says here that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, he uses two different words. Uh, In chapter 8, the word is kainos. In chapter 12, the word is naos. Slightly different terms to emphasize the literally the newness of the new covenant. And so uh, I looked into this and Henry Alford, who's a magisterial grammarian, says that this word is simply more graphic, more vivid. In other words, the author was reaching for a word to really emphasize not only that he made a new covenant, but this new covenant is superior. It is, it's, it's a more l- permanent, lasting, it's, I guess it's his way of saying it's not only new, but better. It's better. It is superior, not just new. And that's exactly what we find. And the old covenant was an administration that God set up, but it was not faultless. In other words, it was never intended to be permanent. It was intended to be provisional. Look at uh, chapter 8 again. Hebrews 8, it says, verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises Keep going, for if that first covenant had been faultless, and the the implication there is it is not faultless. So we were thinking, wow. So then God put a covenant in place that has fault? How do we understand that? Well, I think the next phrase kind of explains it. There would have been no occasion sought for a second. Watch this, finding fault with them. You see that? So if there's one faulty characteristic of the Old Covenant, is it's, it's found in the people. Because what the Old Covenant was saying was, do this and be blessed, do this, fail to do this, and be cursed. So there was definitely a works principle that was operating in the Old Covenant that the people of God could never live up to. This is another reason why the New Covenant is so superior to the Old Covenant. The New Covenant does not tell us, do this and live. The, other, the New Covenant tells us, He did this so that you will live. The New Covenant is emphatically Christocentric. It is all based on Him. It is all based on His work, His blood. So how about that? Not only is he a mediator of a new covenant, he's also the mediator of a covenant that is based on his blood. Isn't that what Hebrews just said? It says here, he, we've come to Jesus, to the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood. That's really interesting if you think about the fact that as the author of Hebrews mentions the old covenant, Mount Sinai, the blazing fire, the darkness, the gloom. Moses is, the people are fearful. Moses is trembling. But you find no mention of the blood sprinkled in the Old Covenant. It's because the blood that was sprinkled in the Old Covenant was not efficacious to bring you to God. The only way you could be brought to God in the Old Covenant is if you had faith in what the Old Testament sprinkled blood symbolized which was, of course, the sacrifice of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. And so, therefore, the sprinkled blood 
here is being used in sort of a double entendre sort of way. He, he hijacks the language of the old Levitical system to show us this is the ultimate sprinkled blood. This is the blood of the new covenant that is perfectly efficacious for us, that cleanses us, that brings true healing, true cleansing. And the blood is absolutely necessary. Uh, look to chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews. Realize that today I have you jumping all over the place. This is good. This is good. I like to hear pages turning or phones swiping or whatever. (laughs) Everything had to have the application of blood. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was reading the Old Testament thinking, there's blood everywhere. Why is there so much blood? Walk around my... Life today, I mean, there's not blood everywhere. I mean, we don't worship with blood at the church. And of course, that blood was simply a token, a symbol of the principle, not only the principle of life, but the principle of redemption that was inherent in the blood. The blood is amazing, is it not? All life is found in the blood, Exodus, or Leviticus says. Leviticus 17, 9. And look at the necessity for the blood. Chapter 9, verse 19. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, the author of Hebrews is so brilliant here because he goes from the ceremonial to the typological, the redemptive. Because he shows us, sure, the old covenant cultists, the old covenant ritual required blood. Um, Everything. Everything needed blood, even the tabernacle. In other words, it was not just the the people that needed blood. We could say, but even the tabernacle, which represented the holy realm of the people, was consecrated by blood. This is fascinating, isn't it? Verse 23, Therefore it is necessary for the copies of the things of the heavens to be cleansed with blood, but the heavenly things with better, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What's it saying? What it's saying is that when the old covenant came and God called Moses to sprinkle blood on the people, the book, the, the tabernacle, everything, he was imaging a reality that corresponded to the heavenly realms. You see that? And when Christ comes and sacrifices Himself, and if you would, to use the language of Hebrews, and sprinkles us with His blood, He's not sprinkling us with the blood of the Old Covenant. He's sprinkling us with the blood that the Old Covenant represented, which was that which sanctified the whole holy realm of Zion. Amazing? 
That's why God tells Moses, be careful, Moses, that you build everything according to the pattern that I will show you, that was shown to you on the mountain. This is heavy-duty typological salvation and redemption that we're looking at here. Moses can't mess it up. (laughs) He can't mess up the typology because what Moses... It wasn't just that Moses was telling him, take a hammer and a peg and put a tent in the ground. God was telling Moses, if you don't do it exactly the way that I show you, you will mess up the analogy that corresponded to the heavenly archetype, the heavenly pattern. Simply fascinating, isn't it? What does this show us, brothers and sisters? To bring it all home. This is not just ordinary blood. This is not just another offering. Of course, His blood is superior. His blood is better. Look at what it says. To understand the quality, the quality of the blood, He invokes a historical redemptive event, namely the murder of Abel, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, Abel's already been mentioned uh, in Hebrews 11. Remember, as he went through the whole hall of faith, verse 4, he talks about Abel who was righteous, right? Because he had a better sacrifice than Cain. Well, here he is referring to his murder. And it says in Genesis chapter 4 that the blood of Abel literally cried out from the ground. And what was the cry? What was it saying to God? I'm of the persuasion that what the blood of Abel symbolized was the principle of judgment and justice, or justice and wrath, justice and vengeance. That Abel, who was innocent, who had done nothing wrong to Cain and did not deserve to die, was murdered for no good reason, and what that murder elicited from God was wrath. And God should have broken out that very instant, and He should have just decimated Cain. But here we're being told that the blood of Jesus speaks of something better. Sure, the blood of Abel cried out from the ground, and solicited the vengeance of God's wrath. But the blood of Jesus is so that much more better because it cries out not from the ground, but from the cross. And it solicitates the grace, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God. This is what the blood of Jesus symbolizes. It symbolizes that God has provided in His Son not judgment, but salvation. What does John say? John chapter 3, verse 17. He did not come into the world to judge the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The whole purpose of the new covenant is redemptive. That's the whole purpose of it. While the old covenant demanded obedience, the new covenant produces obedience. Think of the contrast. While the old covenant had the power to put you to death, The new covenant has the power to make you alive and indeed to give you eternal life. Uh, In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul goes so far as to say the old covenant is death, but the new covenant is life. Amazing. 
while the blood of Abel called for the death and judgment of the sinner, praise be to God that the blood of Jesus calls for the sinner's pardon. The blood of Abel calls for our condemnation. The blood of Jesus calls for our justification. The blood of Abel speaks of enmity, alienation from God. But the blood of Jesus draws us near in a filial relationship with God. In other words, we are friends of God because of the blood. The blood of Abel makes a person an enemy. The blood of Jesus reconciles us to God and forges a friendship in an unbreakable eternal covenant bond. You think God loves His people? You better believe it. He loves us so much we can't even comprehend the depth of His love. How can we not spend our life in the service of Him? This is one point where we can easily see how the new covenant corresponds to the gracious covenant that God made with Abraham because what was that all about? It was to draw Abraham into a friendship with God. Second Chronicles, verse 20. Did you not, O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? Isaiah 41, 8. The Lord says, Israel's my servant. Jacob, who I chose, a descendant of Abraham, my friend. There's no greater thing than to know that God says to us, He is our friend. There's nothing greater, more comforting for the believer to know that God is favorably disposed to you. It's simply amazing. Because of Jesus' blood is so vastly superior, brothers and sisters, it's more superior than Abel, even though he was innocent. Even though he was, t- he was, he was generally a righteous man. Uh, he, he, he was generally a good worshiper. Uh, he offered good sacrifice. He did what was expected of him. He did it with a right heart. It doesn't matter. Because even though we can say, we can speak of the general righteousness of Abel, he was still a sinner. He was still tainted by the fall. But God sends someone to die for us who is absolutely innocent, separate from sinners. As as Peter says, the precious blood of the Lamb, spotless, no blemish in Him. Finally, let's bring it all home. Where do you go from here? What do you focus on from here? Isn't it glorious that the author of Hebrews saves the best for last, we can say? As he goes down the list of all the privileges, the church, the angels, the general assembly, enrolled, the judge, the spirits, he saves the best for last. Zion. When you come to Zion, you come to Jesus. Isn't that glorious? He's building the expectation so that we understand. What is it all about? It is all about Jesus. This is glorious because it makes theology so practical. 
How do you grow in the new covenant? How do you go deep in the new covenant? Know Jesus. Get to know Him. Follow Him. Obey Him. Love Him. He is everything. Right? He's not just one and the same. You remember the mountain of transfiguration? There's Peter. And what happens? Poof. Moses. Poof. Elijah. And there's the Lamb of God. There's Christ. And what does Peter say? Oh, let's make a tabernacle for each one of you. No, Peter. Jesus is not on par with these other two. He is superior to them. You do not put them on the same plane. (laughs) Even as Peter was in the act of fumbling over himself, don't laugh, you would have done the same thing. The divine response comes out of heaven and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. What is Hebrews giving us here? The absolute redemptive supremacy of Jesus Christ. What is it telling us? That if we go all the way back to Abel, a primitive man, that from that historical vantage point, and then as we look across the horizon of all of redemptive history, we come to the apex, the fulfillment, the climax of it all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is what theology is all about. It's about a person. Brothers and sisters, if your theology does not cause you to commune with Him, you need to rethink your theology. You need to rethink what are you studying the books for if the books are not leading you to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is our life source. He's the source of our salvation, Hebrews 9, but but He is our life. Philippians chapter 1 many other places. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we know that in coming to Zion, we don't come to the ordinary. We don't come to just another step in the redemptive process, but we've come to the climax of it all. And oh God, we relish that. We relish that because we understand that what you desire for your people is as Jesus Christ has accomplished his great work, He's coming back. We know that He has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And that there He is waiting for all His enemies to be made a footstool for His feet. But He is coming back again. Even as Hebrews 9.28 tells us, He is coming back to those that eagerly await Him. And so, in other words, we turn it back upon ourselves. We look at ourselves in the mirror. We ask, are we trusting? Are we treasuring? And are we testifying to the goodness of our Savior who is to return? Do we long for that return? Are we eagerly awaiting that? Or are our lives far too mundane? Is our vision limited to this terrestrial ball that we live on? If it is, O God, help us, cause us to repent of having our eyes too fixed on what we see immediately before us 
Help us to be not so much concerned about our daily troubles, our trials, the bills, our culture. Give us sight that goes beyond the immediate. Give us sight that is truly visionary, that looks beyond this world and into the next, into Zion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.